0: The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the Class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the Class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California with renowned journalist and CNN national security analyst Peter Bergen. I'm Brian Fishman, director for counterterrorism and dangerous organizations at Facebook and former director of research at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. I am pleased to be your moderator for today's program. We appreciate your considering a donation to support the Commonwealth Club's work. And if you wish to do so, please click on the blue Donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the club's website at CommonwealthClub.org. We also want to remind you to submit questions via the chat room next to your screen, and I'll get to as many as possible later in the program. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Peter Bergen, journalist, documentary producer, CNN National Security Analyst, Vice President for Global Studies and Fellow at New America, and author of the new book, The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden. In the interest of full disclosure, I'm pleased to say that I worked for Peter years ago at New America, and so I'm particularly excited about today's discussion. Peter has been called the world's leading expert on Osama bin Laden. As we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11, what is the lasting influence of this man? In his new book, The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, Peter provides the first reevaluation of the man responsible for Al Qaeda's attacks on the United States, which precipitated America's long wars with Al Qaeda, its allies, and its descendants. Peter discusses bin Laden in all the dimensions of his life, as a family man, as a zealot, as a battlefield commander, as a terrorist leader, and as a fugitive. Thanks to the exclusive interviews with family members and associates and documents unearthed only recently, Peter's portrait of bin Laden reveals who he really was and why he continues to inspire a new generation of jihadists. Today, we're going to have a conversation about the man who set the course of American foreign policy for the 21st century and whose ideological heirs the U.S. continues to battle today. Welcome, Peter Bergen. Well, Brian, great to be
2: uh, with you, and I—I I, I think it would be more fair to say that we worked together uh, <laughs> for many years, and uh, it was—you know—it's uh, great also that you're doing what you're doing at Facebook. Uh, since uh, so many of these terrorist groups have used, exploited the platform, and trying to make sure that they don't is obviously very important.
1: Well, thank you, thanks, Peter, and um, and thanks very much for taking the time. It's really a pleasure, and I enjoyed the book. My my question is, you—you've you, written a number of books, obviously, and um the the world is your oyster why this book right now
2: i mean there are a few few dimensions of that i teach at arizona state and um one of the bright students in the class who was you know i think she was like 19 at the time um she asked me what's the difference between the al-qaeda and the taliban and i was like well actually that's a really good question there's a lot to unpack there um and i realized that the kids that i'm teaching at arizona state and they're not kids i mean they're students um weren't born weren't born on 9-11 in many cases and the people who are volunteering to fight in the us military uh often weren't born on 9-11 so for them 9-11 is as distant an event as say the korean war is for me it's just, it's like it's a, it's something that happened in history of course it continues to influence events mm-hmm. even to this day and we're you know we're in the middle of a, <clears throat> the final pull out of afghanistan and the non-combat mission in iraq so that, that was one dimension of it was just, you know, it seemed like the twentieth anniversary was a good time to, to and I you know, I've spent two and a half decades reporting on bin Laden and there are still things that I'm learning from the documents, not least the four hundred and seventy thousand files that were released that in fact West Point where he used to work was the first to mm-hmm. kind of interpret them. Uh, nelly lahoud who's a new america fellow uh, was the lead um <clears throat> on that and she's kind of the world's leading experts on, on those documents she herself will have her own book coming out in spring of 2022 about the documents and you know it's really a kind of bin laden never expected that you know every single memo he'd written or every letter he would received or sent would would suddenly fall into enemy's hands so it's really uh bin laden unplugged as it were you know kind of what he was really thinking and and the big discovery in those documents um, was the Bin Laden family journal, which was written in uh, Arabic and was handwritten, and it's sort of not easy to interpret. And I had the help of Nadia Weidat, who I think you know, Brian, who a leading scholar of Islamist uh, thought, who's also a New America fellow. And you know that 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 journal uh, really gets you inside Bin Laden's head in the final months and weeks of his of his life. Um, and of course, the big thing that was happening was the Arab Spring, and he was extremely concerned that he like somehow could intervene to get people to think that he was one of the leaders of the Arab Spring. Of course, this was totally delusional since no one was really asking his opinion about it. Uh, But, you know, he, one of the surprising things perhaps for viewers and for readers of the book is the extent to which he relied on his two oldest wives to do a lot of his writing and thinking. Uh, Two of them, they both had PhDs, one in child psychology, one in Quranic grammar. And bin Laden was assembling his two oldest wives and his two adult daughters and his adult son to have almost nightly meetings to discuss kind of what they would say about the Arab Spring, how they should position themselves. He was keenly aware the 10th anniversary of 9-11 was approaching. He wanted to make a big statement about that. He wanted to make a big statement both on the terrorist front, but also on the ideological front. In fact, he was considering issuing some kind of apology, uh, strangely, uh, on behalf of al-Qaeda. You... uh, Brian, know this from uh, all your work in, on al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, you know, al-Qaeda in Iraq had killed thousands, tens of thousands of civilians in Iraq, and bin Laden was very kind of uh, cognizant of that fact, and he was thinking of issuing an apology, sort of saying, uh, not an apology to the hated Americans, of course, but the, an apology to Muslims, to saying, look, al-Qaeda is going to be rebranded as a group that doesn't attack Muslim civilians. And so if these kinds of, um, you know, we we know a lot more about bin Laden because of these documents and they were only released in full actually at the in during the Trump administration. So there's a there's a big documentary kind of trove uh, that, that was, I you know, was also able to, to draw on. And I always wanted to write this book, to be honest. I mean, it's yes, very simple <laughs> because I'd written an oral history back in 2006. And I think it was sort of a missed opportunity to really write a fully fledged biography.
1: Yeah, you know, I think w- one of the most striking aspects of the book is the degree to which you explain, you know, you 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 delve into Bin Laden as a human being, not just as the sort of mythical, you know, whether yeah. whether whether hero or villain, leader of Al-Qaeda. And and you know, going back even before Al-Qaeda, I mean, th- this is a man that comes from a large, wealthy family in Saudi Arabia. Um and it almost feels, you know, to the layperson like it was inevitable that this that Bin Laden was going to become the man that he was. How did he become the world's most infamous man when his brothers and his sisters and his parents did not? I mean, they, that that's did, such
2: a good, great question because I mean it's a, almost a, you know it's kind of a, a controlled sociological experiment where you know he has fifty four siblings, uh, half siblings, half sisters, half brothers. None of them chose this path, yet they grew up in not dissimilar circumstances. And, you know, I try not to do too much armchair psychologizing in the book for all sorts of reasons, including that I'm not a psychologist. And I just don't think it's that helpful. I try and lay out for the reader how this happened rather than why this happened. The why question is, you know, it's it's hard to answer. Um, often we don't even know ourselves well enough to completely understand our own motivations. So, um, you know, trying to get inside somebody's head. I, I, what, I what I try to show, and I'm, I'm glad you use the word uh, you know, was this inevitable, you know, is to show that it was a long sequence of radicalization. Um, it didn't happen overnight, it took over place over decades. None of it was really inevitable. There were potential off ramps where he could have gone, decided something else. You know, and, and the book is an attempt to document why the shy religious son of a multimillionaire, billionaire, turned into a leader of a group dedicated to killing the mass killing of, of civilians. And <clears throat> this is what the book attempts to do. Um and um and that's really also why I decided to write it. And, you know, there's a library of books. I don't want to compare Hitler and Bin Laden; they're very different. But, I mean, there's a library of books about Hitler and his motivations. In fact, Ron Rosenbaum wrote a brilliant book about trying to answer the why question about Hitler. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's not completely explicable. And some of the, you know, one, I think for the last time that we had a conversation, I wrote, wrote a book, United States of Jihad, and you've kindly hosted me at the Commonwealth Club. And when i looked into these cases of americans who adopted al-qaeda or isis-like ideas i, I often found that they weren't you know they themselves weren't particularly articulate exp, explicators of why they turned to this you know i mean there was a cocktail of reasons they might get involved in uh, violent jihadism uh but like take uh you know Jahar the younger the younger sarniaf brother who killed the six-year-old boy in the mm-hmm. boston marathon and two others i mean he if, if, he, if he was here or asked by you, like, why did you do it? He just would not have a very articulate explanation. He'd have some vague mm-hmm. mumblings about American foreign policy. But lots of people who are opposed to American foreign policy, few of them you know, decide to launch 9-11 or mm-hmm. you know, kill you know innocent spectators at the Boston Marathon. So there's a certain element where you can't, you know, at the end you kind of hit a brick wall on, to some degree because you can't – there's no really rational why reason <laughs> – but there is a process and i document the process in ben Laden's
1: case are there l- let me try to get at this question but without without using the word why okay are there a couple of specific kind of forks in the road i mean i you know i mean i guess i'm asking for counterfactual but where are what are some of those choices where he went he went right or 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 events took him right maybe Um, And he might have gone left.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, the first one is the death of his father age 10. You know, one of the things striking things is bin Laden barely met his father. As far as I can tell, he only had one one on one meeting with his father in his entire life. His parents divorced when they when he was two. You know, bin Laden's dad had 20 other wives. He had 54 siblings. Bin Laden barely knew his dad. But his dad died in an air crash, you know, in in, in 1967 Mm -hmm. when bin Laden was 10. And by his own account, it had a big impact on him. And he told his family in, in the bin Laden family journal. That he really began to study the Quran as a result of the death of his father. That's when he turned more religious. So he becomes a religious teenager. He becomes, you know, almost surprising. I mean, even in seven, 1970s Saudi Arabia, Bin Laden stood out. He, you know, he'd get friends over his house to chant religious songs about Palestine when he was a teenager. It's not typical teenage behavior. He, you know, he was praying uh, an extra in the middle of the night, an extra set of prayers. He was fasting twice a week. So this very religious teenager, that you know. That was sort of the basis. And then, uh, according to Steve Cole, our our former boss at New America, he counted somebody from the Muslim Brotherhood at his high school in Saudi Arabia, somebody who may or may not have been in the Muslim Brotherhood, but certainly had those ideas. That influenced him to turn even sort of towards those ideas. And then, of course, you have 79, which is the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union, the overthrow of a secular dictator in in Iran by Ayatollah Khomeini, a a religious uh, zealot, Um, the attack on Mecca, by religious uh, you know, zealots uh, and so that was a very significant year. and of course, then bin Laden himself traveled to Pakistan within two weeks of the Soviet invasion. And for the first four years of the Soviet anti-Soviet war in Afghanistan, he was going back and forth raising money. You know he'd raised millions of dollars uh, for the Afghan Mujahideen. Um, and then in '84, this is a transform- transformation moment. he went into Afghanistan regretted that he hadn't gone earlier. People had told him it was too dangerous. It was very dangerous. And one of the, you know, one of the, the, I think, the the myths that the book kind of helps um, demolish is whatever else he was, Bin Laden was fighting the Soviets in an almost suicidally brave manner. There's a wonderful uh, book in Arabic that was written by a guy called Abdul Badaji, who um, he published the book in 91. And he interviewed a lot of people who are the Afghan Arabs like Bin Laden he had access to walkie-talkie transmissions, and it—it's a book that also takes the Afghan Arabs to task for their mistakes. So, it ha- even though it's you know sympathetic, it's also I think a pretty reliable piece of history. And of course, Jamal Khashoggi also documented these guys when he was a journalist in, in, in uh, as a young journalist in, in, in Saudi Arabia in 1988. He visited Bin Laden. And so the you know I think the another transformational moment was the battle of Jaji in 1987 where Bin Laden fought the Soviets and out of the out of the battle of Jaji grew the the base they had called at uh, uh, Jaji was called Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda the base became kind of the name of the group. By 1988, But a year after the battle of Jaji, they began meetings to sort of formalizing the founding of Al Qaeda in a more formalized manner, and um, there was nothing there to indicate an anti-American. Uh, you know, we have the the minutes of those meetings, um, you know, Which maybe, yeah. Anybody who's taking notes at a meeting knows that the note taker can uh, put his or her own uh, spin on it. But, but the point is that we have kind of contemporaneous documents about the founding of Al Qaeda. There was nothing in there about the United States. Bin Laden was quite anti-American because of this U.S. support for Israel, by his own account, and I believe this, and and also by other eyewitnesses. In the mid to late eighties, he's delivering speeches in Riyadh and Jeddah. you know, criticizing the United States, calling for a boycott of American goods because of its support for Israel. And then, you know, the invasion of Kuwait, Saddam, threatening Saudi Arabia that, you know, bin Laden famously offered his troops to the Saudi royal family. They laughed that idea out of court. I think that seemed to really piss him off. And he had a number of projects actually in this period, all of which did not go well. He wanted to intervene in southern Yemen, which at the time, uh, there was a kind of quasi-Marxist state that he wanted to overthrow. The Saudi government uh, wasn't in favor of that, and they actually favored a unified Yemen, which what is what what happened. He wanted to intervene in Afghanistan, where uh, the Soviets had had been defeated, but um, they hadn't. You know, there was a communist government. Uh, he, you know, the Afghans didn't treat him seriously. They they saw him as a money guy, not as a, you know, military guy, which is, you know, exactly right. I mean, every every military engagement that Bin Laden got involved in, the Battle of Jaji was, you know, he was rescued by the Afghans, essentially. The Battle of Jalalabad in 1989 was a fiasco in which a lot of his men were killed. Um, 9-11 itself was a tactical success, but a strategic failure. So this guy was not a big, you know, military uh, genius by any stretch. I had no military training. And yet he set up this military organization um, and, uh, you know, I think obviously he had a big ego or something. But uh,
1: Peter, can I ask you can, two questions there? You know, your book documents two key periods here that I think have sort of contributed to the public understanding of Al-Qaeda in in ways that I think are contrary to fact. One is, you know, and you you go at this very hard in the book, is, you know, clarifying that the Arab volunteers in Afghanistan in the 1980s were militarily insignificant and were not a major component of the fight. And yet that experience was, you know, whatever bin Laden did there, it was key to his mythology going forward, both among potential supporters and his enemies. And then this point that you just made about 9-11 as a strategic failure and a strategic mistake by al-Qaeda. Can you talk about those two pieces? Because I think that those are Probably going to challenge some assumptions that that folks listening have.
2: Yeah, well, certainly, you know, the Afghan Arabs, uh, Bin Laden's team uh, on the battlefields against the Soviet, they were, you said, military, militarily insignificant. I think that's correct. I mean, there were at most 300 of them at any given moment. Uh, estimates of the size of Afghans fighting the Soviets in any given moment, 175,000 to 250,000. So and you know Afghans don't really need a lot of help with fighting, particularly from you know Saudis who with no military experience. So and there were some people in Bin Laden's orbit who did have military experience. The Egyptians that he were the the number two in Al Qaeda, Abu Hafs um, uh, al-Masri. He you know, he was an Egyptian uh, policeman and also had served in the Egyptian army, as a lot of Egyptian men had. So there were some people who did understand uh, the battlefield, but. It, it, whatever their understanding, they had no impact on the war, and um, so that, I think that's point number one. Point number two, I mean, the nine eleven attack, um, you know, like 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 Pearl Harbor for imperial Japan, it was a tactical victory. It was not a strategic victory, and it kind of it 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 it, it backfired. I mean, Bin Laden. Bin Laden In 2004 released a videotape saying hey this was all a clever plan to suck the united states into the united into the middle east and bankrupt it well there's no evidence that was his actual plan Uh, at the time he really believed his own propaganda which is the united states is weak i mean when we interviewed him in 97 for cnn he was comparing us to the americans to the former soviet union he really believed that if when we, we but supply apply enough political pressure to the United States, we'll pull out of the Middle East. Instead, of course, we invaded Afghanistan, um, you know, launched the Iraq War. Have we had bases today in Kuwait and Bar- in, in Qatar and UAE uh, that didn't exist uh, before nine eleven? So it, it, it backfired spectacularly. It didn't. It didn't work. Um, and uh, you know, people. There are some people who, who sort of believe that he did want to suck us into endless wars, but that is really to accept in Laden's own post facto judgment of his own failures.
1: Bin Laden goes on the run after 9-11. Um, you know, he was surrounded at Tora Bora. And uh, you know, when when we think about counterfactuals, when I think about counterfactuals, it's not so much bin Laden's choices, but it's American choices. Explain what happened at Tora Bora for folks that are listening and the decision making among Americans. Because you know, we're we're in this, we're having and I'll ask you about this more pointedly later on, but we're in the midst of this process of withdrawing from Afghanistan. Um, and there was a moment in Tora Bora in, you know, 20 years ago now, where the sort of core immediate goal after nine eleven of of disrupting Al-Qaeda and finding bin Laden might have been achieved, and it was not. What happened there, and and how did that process play out? You
2: you mentioned the word counterfactuals, and I I don't do a lot of them in the book, but I do do a counterfactual about let's say we found, let's say we captured or killed Bin Laden at Tarabara. I think it would be much harder to make the, you know, it would have been harder to continue the Afghan war that after all was all about Bin Laden. It might have been easier to make a deal with the Taliban if Al Qaeda was kind of like essentially sidelined. It might have been harder yeah. to make the argument for the Iraq war, which was predicated not only on the west weapons of mass destruction but on the supposed alliance between Saddam and bin Laden that was wasn't true but if bin Laden had been captured or killed, you know things may, might have been different what it didn't happen, and you know now we have you know you you ask me like why write this book now i mean i'll t- one interesting document is Ayman al zawari's uh, the leader of al qaeda um he released his own account in two thousand and fifteen of the Battle of Tarabara. And it, we hit a very specific kind of account of what bin Laden did and, and, and the the day he escaped and, and, and the time and i 'd always known that it was around this time, but now we have Ayman Zwari who was escaped the battlefield with bin Laden saying on the, on the night of December twelfth two thousand and one at eleven p m bin Laden disappeared. The reason that is so interesting is we know that that was exactly uh, you know there's a what a eight, eight and a half hour time difference between the united states and um and Afghanistan. So you know, it's almost exactly at this moment that Donald Rumsfeld is doing a lengthy discussion with General Tommy Franks, the commander of the Afghan War, about the Iraq War plans. Now, the Iraq War plans were eight hundred pages, and uh, Rumsfeld told Tommy Franks he had a week to rewrite them. <laughs> Uh, and then he would, he did the briefing. They did the briefing that day. So as the literally as the World Trade Center continues to smolder, and I went back to see when it you know the pile stopped smoldering, and it was still smoldering on December twelfth. The architect of nine eleven is essentially escaping the battlefield. We didn't put extra boots on the ground. There were more more journalists than American soldiers at the Battle of Tarbar by my count. Uh, and the reason I say that was some certainty. Dalton uh, Fury, which is the pseudonym of Tom Greer, unfortunately now dead, special forces officer who led the American forces at Torabari. He counted a total of seventy American special forces, and some, uh, and total of seventy that included two, twelve people from the British uh, Special Boat Service. So and then I went to Nick Robertson of CNN and also Susan, uh, Susan Glasser of the Washington Post, who both of them were at the battle. Asked them their estimate of how many journalists there were there, and both of them said there were about a hundred. So the point is, is if the journalists could get there, it's not like they have, you know, C-130s and <laughs> Apache helicopters. You know, that we we just and in fact Jim Mattis in his new book, uh, interesting, you know, of course then Brigadier General Jim Jim Mattis, uh, Marine uh, commander had up to 1500 marines in just outside kandahar and he put forward a plan to put marines and observation posts around Tora Bora. uh the plan just it sort of died on the vine and there was also the 10th mountain division in uzbekistan 10th mountain specializes in Alp- alpine warfare Tora Bora is kind of a wintry mountainous uh area at the time of the battle of Tora Bora, and that they weren't deployed either so the point is that we didn't try and i'm not saying that if we had tried Uh, it would have worked because the mountains go up to 14,000 feet. It's six miles by six miles long. You've got the back, uh, you know, you can go into Pakistan very easily. You can, you know, and bin Laden, you know, eventually escape. So, and it was the middle of Ramadan, the Afghans were fasting. It was, you know, everything that, you know, but we, we, the main thing is we just didn't try really in any serious way. And it was known to Bush administration officials that bin Laden was there. They said so publicly. Uh, despite that, they kind of did a reinterpretation of what happened uh, when the election came up in 2004 and they began to all say, well, we don't really know if he was there or not. If you go back on the public record, Wolfowitz said he was there. Cheney said he was there. They, they, when and Contemporaneously, they all believed that he was a
1: barbara. And of course he was. I mean, it's sort of a crystallization of the, the refocusing on Iraq and away from, you know, the immediate perpetrators of of nine eleven. And yet Al Qaeda was tr- disrupted tremendously over the, the, you know, not only in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven with the, the U.S. attack on Afghanistan, but over ensuing years, um, they've conducted and they've conducted a number of attacks in the West. Their affiliates have grown and, and at times split off in, in different directions, most famously ISIS. Um Bin Laden ultimately winds up in this safe house in Abbottabad in Pakistan, not far from Pakistani, you know, quote unquote, Pakistan's West Point. Um, yeah. To what extent, while he is holed up there in this safe house, you're the only American journal, Western journalist to have visited the place. Um, to what extent is he actually running the show for Al Qaeda during those years? And, and what strings did he actually have to pull?
2: Yeah, so I was the only outside observer to get inside the compound. Obviously, there were a lot of journalists who, who which helped me kind of reconstruct the night that he was killed, and also the way that he was living. So, you know, I mean, there's there's two ways of looking at answering your question, Brian. One is, um, you know, if you're running a business in the 19th century without the phone or the or email and you're relying on, messages hand-carried, you know, hand carried, you know it's, it's a hard way to run a business because messages get lost. Um, you know, people ignore your message pretending they never got it or they send a reply and it, it gets lost and it all takes months. So he was trying to micromanage his organization, but he was using a method that was, uh, you know, it was hard to micromanage without, you know, without face-to-face meetings or phone calls or email. Um, and so he, he, he did the best he could. And he, you know, he was certainly intervening. I mean, as you as you know, he he blocked the um, elevation of Anwar al-Awlaki, the Yemeni American cleric. He blocked uh, at his elevation to become the leader of Al Qaeda in Yemen. He told Al shabaab you know, not to identify itself with Al Qaeda would be bad for fundraising. He, um, uh, I mean, one of the things he said to almost all the affiliates he was in contact with is, you know, don't try to set up a local Islamic state. Uh, don't try and attack the near enemy government. You know, do focus on the United States. That was a kind of constant theme. So he was, yeah, you know, he was deep in the weeds. He would write forty-page memos to uh, his uh, top deputy, um, and uh, and you know, and then the top deputy would sort of distribute those orders, you know, to different parts of, of the organization. So. You know, it's, uh, you can make the argument that he was micromanaging the organization and really still in charge, or you can make the argument that it was, you know, it, it was hard for him to manage because, you know, it, just the way he, he, um, he had to kind of communicate with in a very constrained way. You know, Jim Clapper has a good line in the, in, in the book, which is, um, you know, Bin Laden was constantly telling people to attack the United States and, you know, kill Barack Obama and kill David Petraeus and don't bother with Vice President Joe Biden because he's not prepared to be president. But he was constantly tasking them with things that were completely preposterous, you know, and, and Jim Clapper said, you know, reading these documents reminded him of Hitler and the, you know, the, the dying days of World War II when he was moving these army divisions around Europe that didn't really exist. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated picture of a sort of delusional guy trying to micromanage things with, you know, to the best of his ability with the tools he had.
1: You know, I think there, there, there's a lesson there for all of us that, that study terrorism, it, you know, it, that oftentimes the only insight folks have are what these people say um, yeah. and what they say may be deeply divorced from reality. You know, saying you're going to you know blow up the Eiffel Tower doesn't mean you can blow up the Eiffel Tower, um, and, yeah. you know, and I think that it's just a, it's a stark reminder for, in, in my mind, for and, and one of the risks, frankly, of some of the analysis that we see now based on statements that these folks make and throw out online. The, you know, the barrier to entry is just so low. You can say whatever you want. Doesn't mean you can back it up. That That is you know, so
2: true. And bin Laden, you know, is certainly. I mean, I think he famously said, you know, all the al Qaeda does, you know, they wave a flag and they kind of freak the world out. And he, he understood that, you that you know, that he could say things that were, were not really true that uh, would produce a reaction. Um, and, um, but in the end, you know, he died knowing that his main goal of attacking the United States again had not happened. Um, and, you know, it, it was not a heroic end. And, and you know, we, you, at the beginning, you've, you've talked a little bit about, you know, what is his legacy. I mean, I, I, you know, he, he, he's still an inspirational figure, even to ISIS, which of course is in a sort of fight with mm-hmm. Al Qaeda. Um, I think he lingers on as sort of a, but I think over time, you know, the half-life of, uh, you know, people's attention to bin Laden is sort of, it's quicker and quicker and quicker. And if you look at polling data in the Muslim world, you know, it, it actually tracks rather neatly with support for suicide bombing, which is cratered in Iraq and Pakistan and because so many of the victims were Muslim civilians. And bin Laden's public kind of approval has also cratered along with his, you know, approval for suicide bombing, which was kind of mm-hmm. his signature tactic. Um, so, you know, I think eventually, uh, you know, Mike, I, I'm pretty sure this line was written by Michael Gerson, uh, President Bush's speechwriter, but there's a great line about you know, that Al Qaeda would go would be eventually consigned to the unmarked grave of discarded lies. And I think that's a wonderful line. Um and it was in I think the two thousand two uh kind of speech to Congress by President George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're getting to the point where, you know, maybe maybe we're getting to that point. I mean I you know, it's not like he's a subject of great discussion now. He sort of entered into history. Uh he will he I'm sure he'll be an inspirational figure to, in you know in the same way that you know, Stalin is still inspirational in some circles or uh mm. but you know, it doesn't mean that his ideas are, you know, gonna have a huge impact on the continuing He he had some he, one one of the things that Bin Laden did was he he kind of he made it very simple, which is it's all the United States' fault. <laughs> if we would you know if if we if the United States withdraws its support from the authoritarian governments in the Middle East, you know, that everything will change. Um, yeah, and that theory of history turned out not to be true because he, you know, he didn't he didn't achieve what he what he hoped.
1: What would Bin Laden say about our withdrawal from Afghanistan today?
2: Um, he'd be delighted, of course. And I mean, the problem on nine eleven, the twentieth anniversary, is we're going to have this split screen. Uh, in the last day or so, I'm reading accounts of Taliban on Humvees moving into cities. Humvees being, of course, U.S. Um, military hardware, which they've captured mm-hmm. from the Afghan government. And so the split screen on 9/11 is going to be the Taliban, you know, on American military hardware taking over. I don't know what Afghan city, but they've already taken Kunduz, which is a not insignificant city in the north. And in fact, if you look at their successes, they've been in the north, which is not the Taliban stronghold. They're they're making the calculation that we already have the south and the east. We're going to push from the north so that we can actually take Kabul. Now, will they be able to do that? They've got the Afghan National Army, which is semi-competent, but not great. The Afghan Special Forces, who are competent, but relatively small, Uzbek militias and Tajik militias that are all arming and ready to fight. Uh, they may be pretty tough. I mean, they're, they're going to be fighting for their home territory. Ahmed um, mm-hmm. Shah Massoud's son is, you know, kind of organizing the Tajiks. You've seen Ishmael Khan in Herat. Um, Coming back, I mean, Ismail Khan. I, you know, my my wife said I didn't know she, he was still alive. <laughs> he was one of the, you know, Mujahideen warlords. But you know, these guys are serious fighters, and they spent their entire lives fighting. So I, but yeah, Bin Laden, of course, would just. I mean, he he would say, "Hey, you know, I, I got what I wanted. It, it took twenty years. Uh, it was well, that, of course, isn't. You know, I mean, I'm I'm speculating, but it, you know, he 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 would be reveling in this moment.
1: No, I- I want to come back to this because this is obviously a, a critical question and it's, it's contemporary, but 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 I want to stay focused on al-Qaeda a, a little bit first, which is yeah. what, what is the future of al-Qaeda? I mean, it, you know, once you lose bin Laden, you know, Ayman al Zawahiri steps in, there are other leaders out there that have experience. People talk about Saif al a as a potential leader. Um, how do you see that organization being able to function you know, I mean, it's been ten years. They're still out there. We still hear from them occasionally. They still conduct attacks. Um, do they have a future? Can you, you know, does does Al Qaeda have legs without Osama bin Laden?
2: Well, Zawahiri turned out to be a terrible leader um, and you know a black hole of charisma and not an inspirational figure. And one of the one of the themes in the book, Brian, which uh, I think would appeal to somebody like yourself and. People who follow this in some detail is the extent to which, and I include myself in this, you know, people overestimated how important Zawahiri was to mm-hmm. his organization. It turns out that Zawahiri had no role in any planning of attacks against the United States, including nine eleven. He had no role on the big idea, which was attacking the United States. He was really focused on Egypt, and Bin Laden could care less about that. Somebody's actually done a, a survey of Bin Laden's statements, and the you know, top statement is, you know. Uh, anger at the United States and you know anger at the Saudis. These are the two big preoccupations, and I think Egypt is like number twenty-nine down the list, or num- maybe number thirty-two. It's, it doesn't even feature. Bin Laden almost never talked about it, and that was Zawahiri's preoccupation. And when Zawahiri came back, he, you know Zawahiri spent six months in prison in Dagestan, as you may recall, in ninety-seven. That was right in the middle of the embassy planning uh, attacks on the uh, on the attacks the planning for the attacks on the embassies in Africa. Uh, and when he comes back, he's kind of a supplicant in Bin Laden's world, not a you know, not a big thinker. And, and Bin Laden uses him sort of as window dressing for his world Islamic front, because, of course, Zawahiri is Egyptian. Uh, but Zawahiri did not play an important part in Al-Qaeda uh, before 9-11. After 9-11, of course, he becomes the deputy, and now he's the leader. But he's managed this group into the ground. Um, and I, would, if I was a U.S. counterterrorism official, I'd just leave him in place, because you mentioned Saif al he would be a much more serious contender, a former Egyptian special forces officer who's kept it incredibly low profile, who's been with al-Qaeda since the beginning, Uh, he he would be, but even if, let's say, Saif al-Adel took over the organization, al-Qaeda is, you know, it's now it's a local jihadi group in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Now, obviously, it has affiliates in Yemen, it has affiliates in North Africa, it has affiliates in East Asia, and they kind of wax and wane over time. Sometimes, you know, if we've had the, you know, you you may recall when al-Qaeda in Yemen actually control big chunks of the country. They don't now. You may recall hmm. when al-Shabaab in Somalia controlled much of a good chunk of Somalia. That's not true now. That can change. So I, I think these things go up and down. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're, t- we're talking, you're in San Francisco and um, we're in the Bay Area and I, I'm in Washington, D.C. You know, Could al-Qaeda carry out a, a, an attack in the United States? And the answer is, I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, there's only been one attack by a foreign terrorist organization since 9 11 in the united states and that was the pensacola attack that by uh, a saudi military officer killed three american sail- sailors in 2019 we, we still mm-hmm. it's not clear if that attack was directed by al-qaeda in yemen or simply they were kind of generally aware of it uh, but yeah, i mean mm-hmm. if we'd had this conversation two years after 9 11 and we said that you know al-qaeda and its affiliates Despite attempts, um, were not able to carry out a lethal terrorist attack in the United States. You would have said that's absurdly optimistic, but that's what ha- that's what that mm-hmm. that is what's happened. That isn't to say that if we just like let Afghanistan dis- disappear into a you know giant civil war and it turns into a vortex of ungoverned spaces and you know, every jihadi group in the world kind of pours in, um, you know, um, they're, they're, you know we, we've seen the movie before and we saw that in Iraq. And, you know, the, the thing I find surprising is, you know, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, and President Joe Biden presided over that uh, decision to pull down troops in Iraq to zero in December of 2011. And three years later, the Obama administration is back in Iraq because of the rise of ISIS. Um, and, and ISIS and the Taliban are different. But there's some, there's some interesting similarities in their playbooks right now. One of the, you may recall, uh, you, I know you will recall the That whole campaign that Al Qaeda in Iraq did to uh, attack prisons and get the prisoners released, that became the core of ISIS. And you're seeing this with the Taliban. A, we, you know, the peace negotiations with the Taliban that we sort of essentially, you know, we, we we got the Afghan government to kind of go along with it, even though we didn't include them. And we we, we forced them really to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners. Well, those have mostly joined the Taliban. And every mm-hmm. city the Taliban goes into now or town, first thing they do is they go to the prison and they let loose all these prisoners. So there's some interesting similarities between the Taliban advances and the ISIS advances. They are, of course, different organizations. Uh, but they're using freed prisoners. They're also using... The sense that they their their victory is—I mean, people are not fighting the Taliban, and they didn't fight ISIS. And the Afghans have told me, and I'm surprised by this: the Afghan National Army is weaker than the Iraqi National Army was at the time of the 2014 ISIS campaign. Um, And if that's true,
1: it's 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 sad. Mm -hmm. But Peter, I think—I mean, I think you know—and this is coming up in some of the the questions folks are folks are asking is what's the alternative? We spent 20 years in Afghanistan. We've pumped trillions of dollars into the, you know, NSF, um, trying to, to build out a government that can fund itself and defend itself and do these sorts of things. And yet we see that within a matter of weeks, months, um, you know, it's crumbling. Is it, isn't it good money after bad to, to continue to, to, to invest?
2: Well, um, Presidents as different as President Obama, President Trump and President Biden all came up with similar kind of answers. I mean, President Obama wanted to go to zero. Then he did a kind of cost risk benefit analysis. He left 8,400 mm-hmm. troops. Trump wanted mm-hmm. to go to zero, never got there. But he's certainly was drawing down. And President Joe Biden is going to zero at the end of the month. Um, so certainly, you know, pre- very different presidents and um, kind of arrived at sort of similar conclusions. But I, my answer would be uh, the following. I mean, we're still in South Korea. 75 years after the armistice that ended the, you know, the, the, the hostilities. We have 25,000 troops in South Korea, It was one of the poorest countries in the world in 1953. And now it's one of the richest. And you know, South Korea and Afghanistan, are not you know, it's not like they're exactly the same, but there are some similarities in the sense that 20 years is actually not that long a time in the, in the grand scheme of things. If I went back and I looked at the history of South Korea, South Korea was a sort of has been an authoritarian democracy for a long time or or a military hunter. It's not like they were a democratic state as they are now for much mm-hmm. of their history. Um, and of course, you know, Afghanistan is an, an imperfect democracy in the sense that the, the government... I mean, one. I think our big mistake, two big mistakes was one... Uh, treating the Taliban as a government in waiting. We, the United States, did that as opposed to the actual government uh, that we had supported. Mm-hmm. And then excluding that government from any discussions with the Taliban. I mean, at the end of the day, if there's going to be peace, it's got to be, be between the Afghan government and the Taliban, not between us. I mean, it, these peace negotiations were really withdrawal negotiations for the United States. And I, I just think it could be managed very differently. So if we had left one Marine, we're going to obviously leave some Marines outside the U.S. Embassy so it doesn't get overrun. Mm-hmm. But part of our I think problem has been a messaging problem um, in the sense that, you know, December 1st, 2009, President Obama goes to West Point. He delivers his surge speech, but he also talks about withdrawal. And so we've been talking about withdrawal for a long time, which has had an effect on the Taliban, the Afghan government, the Afghan people, Pakistan. And, yeah, people have taken us seriously that we're we're leaving shortly um, and I think that it could have been, I, I think a part of it actually go this is a sort of maybe bigger observation, but the United States is an anti-empire project from the beginning, and we're very uncomfortable with aspects of empire, even though we are the world superpower. And, and the fact is that I, I do believe that, uh, we have, you know, some interests in Afghanistan that are worth preserving, whether that's, uh, preventing another Al Qaeda rise or preserving the, you know, the girls, uh, and, and women, uh, the, Kind of the rights that they've 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 received uh, in the sort of post Taliban era, and I, I I say all that because I I spent I spent time in, in in Afghanistan under the Taliban and you know the population of Kabul then was five hundred thousand. It's now no one knows what the number. 4 million, four million five million. There was no phone service, no internet service, no economy. The World Bank stopped measuring economic indicators in Afghanistan because there were none uh, in the in the Taliban era. It was you know it was a ta- it, and the, so, and the, let's say even the, the Taliban do become the government again, there, there's no evidence that they're going to be different, and they have no plan for real governance. They, they just they want to make the world, you know, the world pure and have you know their version of Sharia law, and they, they think that's sufficient. Um, and I think the the good the good thing is they you know Afghanistan is one of the youngest countries in the world. I think seventy percent of the population is under the age of twenty five, and I don't think. For most of those men and women, you know, there's no great nostalgia for the Taliban. They, they know what happened. Um, and um, but we'll see. I mean, I think what will happen for sure is a very nasty civil war. And, you know, the weakness of the Afghan National Army is one thing. Um, the Afghan Special Forces do have some capacity. But I would also look at the Tajik militias, the Uzbek militias, the Hazara militias. These guys, you know, fought a brutal civil war. Uh, again, and, and they've fought the Taliban. Um, you know, they're ready to do it again. So instead of the Taliban taking over the entire country, I think what we have condemned uh, Afghanistan to is a kind of nasty civil war that makes the present conflict look like a croquet match. And you know, we will, we may have to intervene again. We did it. We did it in Iraq uh, because you know, events in Afghanistan have a way of kind of not staying there um and um you know for a country that's ins- relatively insignificant it's actually played an outside role in, in American kind of foreign policy whether the defeat of the Soviet Union there or the 911
1: mm-hmm. attacks when you were going through the, the the documents from you know that were collected in uh in Abbottabad, and I want to you know you know pivot and ask you about the raid itself and the the development of that raid and how how the US government understood the rise of bin Laden and then ultimately the hunt For him. but but Skipping ahead a little bit, you know what was the relationship between Al Qaeda and the Taliban now, and does that does that tell us anything about how we can understand? I mean, the Taliban on the one hand, they did come negotiate with us. Al Qaeda wouldn't have done that. Um, yeah. You know, they have had you know long term relationships with the Pakistani government and dealt with others in you know responsible you know or at least you know uh, they have had discourse in ways that Al Qaeda would not. Um, what should we understand as the sort of relationship and and what's the same about Al Qaeda and the Taliban? And what's the difference? Like tease the, you know, we yeah. are your Arizona state students. What are the, what's the <laughs>
2: difference? Those differences, but I want to get, I want to respond to one of the things that you just said, which is about the the, the Taliban peace negotiations. I, I think the Taliban had no intention of making peace. They just saw it. they won more in the battle. They won more at the negotiating table in Doha than they ever won at the battlefield because they got us to pull out. And I think it was a very clever ruse, and and it was one we were prepared to go along with, perhaps. Uh, But Mm -hmm. it was, you know, they they have no intention. You know, they were supposed to divorce themselves from Al Qaeda, according to the United Nations, in June. Their relations remain very close. I mean, the United Nations is not an organization, as I see, you know, promoting war. And here is the official report saying that Al Qaeda and Taliban are very close. Even, and and in fact, they even said it's those relations are getting tighter because of intermarriage and. so, you know, I mean, of course, the Taliban is a Pashtun ethnic group that wants to install a, you know, theocratic state across uh, all of Afghanistan. Um, that is not al-Qaeda's kind of goal. Um, Al-Qaeda has a you know much bigger vision of getting the United States to pull out of the Middle East and hoping the Taliban-style theocracies will stretch from Indonesia to Morocco. I think uh, I'm just trying to summarize the two of the differences yeah. of what they want. So one is a nationalist movement, uh, you know, with a you know, with a kind of totally nutcase religious fundamentalist aspect to it I mean, muzul omar called himself the commander of the faithful well the commander of the faithful means that he's he's the commander of all muslims everywhere i mean it's not a modest statement um and you know it, 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 he's a, he was a religious fanatic with delusions of grandeur and he was close to bin Laden so the differences are i, I think are less important than the similarities in the sense that these guys do the, and the, the documents you asked about the documents the documents show joint operations between the Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and the Haqqani network. The documents show Al-Qaeda funding the Taliban, which is kind of interesting because we think that the Taliban is being more well-funded than Al-Qaeda. The documents show Bin Laden's writing letters to Mullah Omar in the weeks before he was killed, letters from tayab Aga to Al-Qaeda, who was, Tayyip Aga was the main negotiator for the Taliban uh, uh, with, the, with the Americans. So the documents portray a pretty warm relationship and that, but of course, those are 10 years old now. Uh, <clears throat> but fast forward to the UN report and fast forward to accounts of Al Qaeda being on the front lines today, um, you know, I I was always skeptical that these groups would somehow I think people make a mistake when they think everybody's gonna behave like a rational actor. Because the rational actor <laughs> you know, there there was a bunch of I I would say Taliban apologists and you know who they are, Brian. I mean, they they always said, Well, the Taliban will, you know, they'll just kind of They'll realize what a disaster of nine eleven was for them, and they'll just do the right thing and separate themselves from Al Qaeda. Well, the documentary record suggests that's not true. I do think, however, that there was a moment that was missed in two thousand two. The Taliban were really defeated, and I think that they, it would have been easier to have a peace a negotiation with them then, when they were mm-hmm. defeated and ready to talk. And that was, you know, basically not that was a road not taken. Uh, but today, um, you know, then the idea that they're going to do a peace negotiation with the Afghan government is, is ludicrous on its face. But that was one of the premises of our you know, peace negotiations that began in earnest in
1: 2018. Yeah, I, I want to I, I have a lot of questions for you, Peter. I, I could I could pick your brain on Afghanistan all day. I'm going to go to the audience, though. Um, I, I've been summarizing a few of those questions, but, but there are a couple here that are interesting. Um, one is, do you have any idea why bin Laden never attacked Israel? over uh, Palestine?
2: That is such a great question. And, you know, Hamid Mir, who's one of the people that I quote in the book, asked bin Laden that question directly. And, you know, Hamid Mir says that bin Laden just, he hadn't really, he, he, he just didn't have a good answer to that. And he, he um, it's like he hadn't even considered the question. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to do my best to answer for bin Laden through this question from Hamid Mir. He didn't, he just, he, for some reason, even though Israel was like, you know, he started thinking about Palestine when he was a teenager, um, and, you know, and, and being focused on the issue, he, he, now he may have calculated that, you know, Al Qaeda, it wasn't, I, I don't know what he, 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 the fact is he didn't. And mm-hmm. why he didn't is sort of a mystery. You, I can add another point, which is mm-hmm. he re- he really thought of, of, of New York as sort of a Jewish target, I think. I mean, if you mm-hmm. think about Mullah Omar was asked after 9-11, you know, kind of like about the al-Qaeda's role in the attacks, and he spouted an absurd conspiracy theory about the 4,000 Jews who didn't show up to work. So, I mean, both bin Laden, bin Laden, by the way, he, one of the anecdotes in the book, he named his daughter, who was born a few days after 9-11, Sophia why did he name her Sophia? Because Sophia was the aunt of the prophet Muhammad, who killed a Jew. And he, he told people, Hamid Mir, that he hoped that um, his daughter would grow up, grow up to kill Jews. So it's only he, he was a profound anti-Semite um, and, and you know, very anti-Israel, but he, he didn't attack Israel itself. And I mean,
1: you know, it's, it's,
2: it's a question he couldn't really answer when he was asked.
1: There's there are a couple of questions here that uh, that I think point to some of our politics in the United States right now and the terrorist threat domestically. I, it, it, you know, how do we understand you know the continued threat from Al Qaeda, you know, international terrorist groups like that, with the rise of more domestic terrorism? And I know you you know the audience may not know, but you you know, early in your career did a lot of work on on you know domestic terrorism. Um, how do you compare those? differences. And, and, you know, do we ever get a bin Laden, you know, coming from the, you know, an American bin Laden?
2: Interesting question. You know, I mean, we at New America track um, all forms of political violence and jihadist terrorists since 9-11 have killed, I think, like 107 people, I believe. And right-wing extremists have killed, you know, 111. My numbers may be not precise, but I'm very close. And the point is, is that Right-wing terrorism, um, of course, has been a very steady kind of uh, threat in the United States and long preceded 9-11 mm-hmm. with the Oklahoma City bombing and uh, and other uh, acts of right-wing violence. But, and of course, there's been other forms of political violence in the United States. As some people forget the 1970s, there were 100 hijackings um, of, in the United States, many of them for criminal purposes, but for a lot, a lot for political purposes. Uh, There were Puerto Rican nationalists who detonated 85 bombs in the 70s. There was the Weather weather Underground. There was the Black Panther. So political violence is not, you know, of various kinds, is a fairly constant feature of American life. Um, And, you know, so would there be an American bin Laden? Uh, No, because you can't have training camps in Oregon training thousands of people and have a secret organization where people pledge allegiance to bin laden and you know it, it like it would be you know, very very hard to do but but we do have obviously um right-wing extremists uh and we also have interestingly uh you know one of the things that we, we're tracking is the rise of ideological misogyny as a kind mm-hmm. of a, a, and we track only lethal attacks and we have we use a very conservative kind of methodology so if, if there's some kind of question around ideology we don't include it but you're seeing an uptick of that or not an uptick but sort of a. Uh, you're also seeing some black nationalist uh, lethal terrorist attacks mm-hmm. and you're seeing some, some rather small numbers of, of leftist far leftist uh, lethal attacks but i mean the big problem is the right-wing extremist attacks and also jihadi terrorism attacks um and you know the jihadi terrorist attacks tend to be you know um Obviously, Omar Mateen killed forty-nine people in Orlando in twenty sixteen um, on the behalf of ISIS. Um, so they're often more lethal. Um, but anyway, the FBI, like, you know, I think there's a narrative. The FBI only kind of woke up to this recently. I actually don't really buy that. I think the FBI and anybody in law enforcement has been very concerned about right-wing extremism, because the people that these right-wing extremists often try and kill, as we saw at the January 6th insurrection are police officers, <laughs> you know, and, and that goes back a really long way because in the right wing, sort of the totally like crazy world of the Zionist occupation government and all that, you know, they're, they're enemies of the state and um, they're legitimate targets. So I, I think law enforcement's actually been concerned about this for a long time um, because, you know, it's, it's a real, it's a real issue.
1: Peter, I think, it, you know, there's, um there are some who argue, and I know I, I haven't read the book; it's about to come out. But Spencer Ackerman's got a book coming out called the *Brain of Terror*, where he basically, I think, is connecting the the process of fighting the war on terror and its impact on our domestic civil discourse, and and it is sort of um, undermining our our own political norms. Do you see what what is the impact of our sort of dedication and focus over the last twenty years in perpetual war fighting? Does it have an impact on who we are and how we talk to each other? I um I I have read the manuscript. Uh, Spencer Ackham is a really smart guy.
2: I don't agree with everything that he says, um, but um, I do say in my in my book uh, that it's hard to explain the rise of Trump absence the war on terror, because Mm -hmm. if you go back to um, 2015 2016, you know uh, Americans were polled on um, the issue of terrorism and uh, they the They were asked the question, are you worried that you will be a victim of terrorism or a family member? And it was the highest number since just after 9-11, during that 2015-2016 time, because of ISIS, the attack in Orlando. I mentioned the attack in uh, the office party in in California by the married Mm -hmm. couple. Uh, You know, ISIS killed 130 people in Paris. There was a lot of coverage of, you know, ISIS had beheaded American journalists and, and aid workers like Jim Foley and others. And there was a huge amount of news coverage of this, and and Trump, um, you know, came up with the idea of the travel ban, which, you know, made no sense uh, from a sort of factual point of view, but was actually quite popular. Half of Americans thought it was a good idea. I'm not talking, talking about half of Republicans, based on polling mm-hmm. data. And if you ask Republicans, the number was like 80, percent. and you mm-hmm. know, it was so. The point is that Trump was able to use that, and we, he, you know, he didn't really talk about it uh, in, uh, uh, as as the threat receded. Um, he, I think he could have made more of an issue about you know he was involved uh, you know in in the end of ISIS um, and, and is one of his I think few foreign policy um, kind of pluses. But he really you know it's hard to put yourself back in the pre 2016 presidential campaign, but. Terrorism was a big issue and Trump tended to do better on the issue than Hillary Clinton because he had what appeared to be a really simple answer, which actually would have had had no impact. I mean, the travel ban stopped uh, under Joe Biden. It's not like we're suddenly having tons of terrorist attacks Um, Mm -hmm. and the people that. it. The, the Saudi military officer that I described, who killed three American sail- sailors at Pensacola, well, the Saudis, which did carry a Saudi military officer, carry out an attack, and he, of course, was not subject to the travel ban. So the point is, this was a solution in search of a problem that didn't really exist, uh, but it was politically quite useful for Trump. So I, I do think there, um, you know, everything has you know second and third order consequences, and I think you, you know Ben uh, Trump, you know, claimed that. He saw a bunch of Arabs cheering on 9-11, of course, that was untrue, but it played well with the base. So he was able to kind of tap into this kind of fear of of terrorism that was very real, real in 2015, 2016. And I think he was it was a political advantage for him.
1: I want to come back. We only have a few minutes left, but I want to come back to this notion of the sort of whole picture of Osama bin Laden as as both a terrorist mastermind, but also a family man. Um, in Abbott, in Abbottabad, he was there living with several of his wives, kids, uh, some bodyguards. Tell us about his life there and explain what, when, um, you know, American intelligence analysts and special forces operators are trying to figure out how to attack this compound, what sort of considerations did they have to go through as they're thinking about an assault on a compound with, you know, 25 people on it, including a bunch of children.
2: Yeah. The seals went in um, with a little laminated card with everybody they expected to see there. And um, I, they, they, they didn't know how many people, there were. there you said 25, there were ultimately there were 27. They couldn't have known that bin Laden had two other mm-hmm. kids who were like under the age of three with his much younger wife, or they didn't probably know that some of his grandkids were living there. So, but the point is, is that they, you know, they looked at one of the tells, and this was interestingly picked up by the New York Post when they just sort of took an extract from the book. A tell was uh, that there was too much laundry on the lines for just the bodyguard and uh, and their families, there were 11 members of the bodyguard's uh, families, and there were 16 of Bin Laden's. And there's, when they saw the amount of laundry that was being processed, they were like, oh, there's a third family here that seems to have a lot of... Kids and adults and that, that sort of fit with Bin Laden. You said the word "family man." You know, the New York Times ran a the headline was uh, of the review, "Fanatical Terrorist and Family Man." There was a lot of sort of like attacks from the right that, you know, kind of portraying as such was was bad. And I think they changed the headline to something more bland, like fuller picture of Bin Laden. But the point is, it's like you know, Hitler was nice to his dog. It doesn't mean that he was a nice guy. Hitler was somewhat nice to his girlfriend Eva Braun, who you know that doesn't mean that he was a great guy either. And so the mm-hmm. idea that somehow the, the mass murderer bin Laden couldn't also be nice to his family and actually hold his wives in somewhat high regard because of their educational attainments and they actually advise him. I mean, the fact that these are, the idea that these are in, can't be compatible is crazy because we know from any anyone who studies history knows that wars or acts of mass murder are carried out by humans with human kind of emotions and human stories. And, you know, you can't, I'm not attempting to do a sort of to comprend, say to pardon, pardon which is, you know, if you understand everything, you forgive everything. That's not my intent here with this book. But I, you know, the mm-hmm. has entered history. Um, and I think, you know, as a as somebody, one of the few people in recent decades who's actually changed the course of history, um, I think it you know we're all owed an explanation of who he was and that doesn't pretend that he didn't have you know his three wives and his dozen kids and grandkids for five years when he was living in that compound in Abbottabad
1: that's part of the story yeah well undoubtedly the intelligence analysts putting together that targeting package had that as central to this to the story that they they were looking
2: they did the fact that this guy the people who knew him the best when I say knew him in the in the intelligence community the fact that most fugitives don't take a dozen kids and grandkids on along for the ride and three wives. <laughs> but for the people who were really following bin Laden, they were like, Wow, that that's a tell that this is bin Laden because he had spent this is exactly the way he lived in Sudan, with the multiple wives with their own apartments, the multiple kids, exactly the same way he lived in Afghanistan, and here he is replicating it in Abbottabad. So for them this was evidence that it really was bin Laden, because of course the case was entirely circumstantial. Uh, they didn't you know they 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 saw the large family as evidence for being bin Laden being there not as evidence of him not being there
1: after bin Laden was killed his body was dumped into the Arabian Sea um there was sort of a a moment of uh of almost disbelief in Washington um and decision making by president obama about when and how to announce that uh that they that he had been killed talk through that process, because I think in in decision making, because I think it's important for, it was one of our only chances as the United States to shape that final legacy, to shape the understanding of how he went out. Um, What was that process like? Well,
2: you know, one thing that we learned from the documents in Abbottabad is that uh President Obama really got the timing right because Bin Laden had agreed with his bodyguards one one of the, you know he was paying them 100 bucks a month they were both rebelling saying hey we this is a you know a very dangerous job you're paying us very little we want to leave. We are leaving. And so, in fact, relations got so bad that they Bin Laden wrote them a letter on January 15th, 2011, saying, I know that we had a really bad argument. Let's get down and writing what our agreement is. And they agreed that they would the bodyguards would leave as early as July 2011. And so one of the one of the reasons Obama made the decision he did is like, well, what if Bin Laden leaves? You know? And it turns out that he was going to be forced to leave because the House wasn't in his name. It was in the bodyguards name. Uh, the bodyguards mm-hmm. were leaving. Um they were they were they were they were fed up. Um and um so you know the process of Obama getting to that decision it took I, I won't it, I can't get into it because it takes too long because <laughs> it took it was a very complicated process over a year. But it is one of the classic, you know, I mean you look at Kennedy's process uh during the um <clears throat> during the Cuban Missile Crisis, obviously the stakes were higher, it was nuclear war uh, but you know we, we elect presidents uh, to make decisions with imperfect information, not perfect information and whether it was a Cuban missile crisis for kennedy or or it was um you know the bin Laden raid for obama um you know they both made decisions without knowing all the facts for sure, not least in in obama 's case, whether or not that was actually Osama bin Laden there. And, it, you know, one of the scenes in the book is there's a big discussion, uh, right, with people that you you know in the in the White House situation room, um, Mike Leiter, Nick Rasmussen, and others. And there's a discussion of, like, you know, well, he's 40% there, he's 60% there. And, you know, Obama eventually just cuts it off and says, look, I mean, it's a 50-50. And when he, Obama made the decision, it's, it's either a, a 0% there or a hundred percent that so all this <laughs> discussions of percentages gave this kind of false sense of mathematical rigor to smart people were trying to put odds on something and so he made a decision without not having the and that's you know that's what presidents are supposed to do which is um you're, you're not making difficult decisions with perfect information you're making difficult decisions with imperfect information uh and that was one of these cases and and um So I think it's a sort of textbook case of how a a real process works. And obviously the president made the right decision. Of course, Joe Biden was against it.
1: Peter, Um, we have less than two minutes left. You end the book talking about um, the Bader-Meinhof gang and what happens when terrorists fade into history. Uh, Is that going to happen with Osama bin Laden?
2: I think it will. I mean, you know, there's a scene where I say in the, Uh, Gina Bennett, who was the first on the case, is still on, still at the agency attached to the National Counterterrorism Center. You know, she was a young colleague, said to her the day that Bin Laden died, you know, great victory. And she said, well, you know, the worst day is still ahead for them. And the young colleague said, what is that? She said, you know, have you heard of the Meinhof gang? And the young colleague said no, which, of course, was an infamous terrorist group in the 1970s in Germany. Um, and, and Gina Bennett says well you know the day the worst day is when people in the counterterrorism center just don't know who these people are anymore, <laughs> and obviously that you know it, that's not but i mean she was saying it for effect i think in 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 and but I think you know he will just kind of recede and recede and recede and you know uh, his influence on history he didn't get what he wanted um and you know so i I think he will fade over time he will not disappear. Um, But he's certainly not the figure that he was, uh, you know, in the the days and weeks after
1: 9-11. Our thanks to Peter Bergen, CNN National Security Analyst, Vice President for Global Studies and fellow at New America, and author of the new book, The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden. We want to remind everyone that Peter's book is available online and at your local bookstore. We also want to thank all of our viewers. I'm Brian Fishman, and now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you.